Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to Exploring the Lord of the Rings. Uh, this is Corey Olson, the Tolkien Professor, and this is session number 176 of our Exploring the Lord of the Rings. Uh, we are in session, I think, 52 this week of our discussion of the Council of Elrond. Uh, so, uh, very excited. And tonight, of course, we are going to get into the nitty-gritty of weighing the different options. We started this. Or rather, Elrond cunningly segued into this uh, by going to Tom Bombadil by way of squirrels, uh, uh, as we were discussing last time, uh, so that we start examining the options there. Um, but um, yeah, Tony, it's possible Bombadil's going to dominate the proceedings again. Can't rule that out, uh, but uh, not necessarily. That's not necessarily the plan. Um, we're going to, uh, we'll, we'll see. We'll see how far we get, of course, as always. Um, but, um, you know, one of my big questions tonight as we look at these is I want to be thinking about, I want to be trying to understand what is the rationale behind not only the suggestions, but the objections. They're, you know, every, every suggestion that's going to get made is going to get shot down in this discussion. On what basis are they being shot down and what can we learn from that? So those are going to be uh, some pretty interesting things, I think, um, that we're going to be uh, uh, that we're going to be able to look at. So, <laughs> yeah, Matt says the only time Bombadil doesn't dominate the conversation is when we're discussing Weathertop. Yeah, yeah, uh, fair enough, fair enough. Um, but before I start, two quick announcements that I wanted to make. First, uh, I want to um, remind you guys, as I've announced before, I wanted to remind you uh, that MythMoot registration is open, MythMoot 8, uh, which is happening between the 24th and the 27th of June. Um, so you can sign up. We have both of our digital options available for sign up right now. MootCast, which is where you can attend just the sessions live, like just the talks and paper presentations and things like that. Um, and you also, very importantly, get access to the full digital archive recording, like of all of the sessions. So you can go back and rewatch something or check out something that you missed or something when you had to make a hard choice between which panel to attend. Um, but Mootcast is a particularly good option for folks who know they're not going to be able to really spend the weekend, you know, with us at the conference. Um, you'll miss out on a lot of the sort of live synchronous interactions and stuff, but you'll be able to get the sessions and be able to see them afterwards. But if you do, uh, if you are able to take the time over the weekend to really spend that, you know, like a real full immersion conference with us, uh, the Moot Hub option uh, is a really important option, is a really, really great uh, thing. Uh, Moot Hub was so good last year, and I'm really looking forward to that again. Um, so Mootcast for the largely asynchronous option and Moot Hub uh, for the more synchronous, more highly interactive option. Um, those are the two options that we have. Now, as I have said before, we are weighing the possibility of doing a hybrid moot this year. Um, you know, we don't, we, we haven't made a decision on that yet and we're not going to make a decision, uh, still for uh, until the end of the month. But, um, the more people who sign up, uh, the more kind of input we want to, you know, the more people sign up, the more input we'll have on this subject. As for people who are planning to attend, would you be interested in attending? 
in person if that were available or not? Or, you know, what are your feelings about that? We definitely want to make sure that we can take into account the, you know, the 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 preferences of the folks who would be attending. So um, it's not the only factor, but it's definitely an important factor. And if lots of people wait, I mean, of course, we'll, we'll be doing registrations, you know, for a while yet. Um, but um, the if, if everybody waits, you know, for a couple months, then you know, our decision point is going to be passed because we really do need to make a final call on this sooner rather than later. Uh, again, we, we're looking at the end of the month on making the call as to whether or not we're going to be all digital or whether we're going to try a hybrid thing uh, this year. So um, anyway, uh, so that's um, that is. Um, that is what we're hoping for. So just just a reminder, uh, if you're if you're definitely thinking about Mythmoot, uh, go ahead and sign up. Uh, there's no there's no reason to do, like if you're think if you're if you're kind of waiting to see. This is one of the, the main thing I wanted to emphasize. If you're kind of waiting to see what we decide about, is there going to be in person or is there not going to be in person? Don't wait to sign up until we announce it, uh, because it's going to be better. You'll be able to actually influence that decision if you sign up beforehand. And then, you know, uh, if we do uh, have an in-person thing, you know, we'll add a, you know, there'll be like a, a, an upgrade option. It'll be really simple. So you're not going to lose out. You're not going to, it's not going to cost more. Um, it's going to be fine. Uh, so just, um, uh, but again, the difference is you won't, um, uh, you won't, uh, uh, be part of the decision process there. So sooner, if you're, if, if you're definitely thinking about myth moot, sooner is definitely better so that you can be a part of that discussion. And yes, uh, the call for papers, um, also, you know, whether you're able to attend in person or not, it doesn't matter whether we have it hybrid or digital, the call for papers is for everybody. Um, so, uh, definitely, uh, take a look at that. There's so many good discussions that have come out. So many good arguments you guys have made so many wonderful posts on our discussion board. There's so much material, uh, from, you know, listener participation in this discussion, uh, that would be just wonderful fodder for further discussion, uh, at MythMoot. So, um, uh, make, a uh, make a, 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 a proposal. It doesn't have to be a scholarly paper. Uh, it can be a creative project. It can be just sort of leading a discussion or a debate on a particular uh, topic. Um, so, uh, yeah. So, uh, Mad Violinist, the theme for this year is the world ahead. That is, that is the theme. Um, as in, home is behind, the world ahead. Um, uh, so, that's, uh, uh, that's where... Uh, that's, that's, that, that's our theme for MythMoot 8, um, uh, which I think is pretty cool. So that is the, uh, uh, that is the, that is the option. Um, yeah, exactly. Uh, JJ says from personal experience, don't worry about whether it's academic enough. If you have a cool idea, suggest it and let the organizers decide. Absolutely. Absolutely. Exactly. Druid's Fire is referencing her present. She did a presentation on video game adaptations uh, of Tolkien's work uh, last year. That was a that was a really fun presentation. So, yeah, absolutely. Lots and lots of options. Um, uh, so I hope that folks will consider that. Again, the call for papers is on the MythMoot page. All of this information can be found at signumuniversity.org slash MythMoot, uh, and you can go. The registration links are there. The uh, uh, information on our presenters and on um, uh, 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 the, the 
call for papers, all that stuff is there. Um, so please do look at that. The other thing I wanted to remind you of, again, not a new announcement, but I wanted to remind you of, is our Signum Academy Clubs program. Um, so we are getting ready. We've, we're forming our first sections now. Uh, it's been, you know, we've, we've had a few delays because uh, of stuff. It's a long and boring story, but we've had a few delays, but we're done with our delays uh, and we are prepared. We're now forming our first sections, our first book club sections, our first uh, creative writing uh, workshop sections, our first translation club sections. Um, uh, it's going to be it's going to be awesome. So um, I uh, am really, really excited about our clubs program. For those of you who haven't heard me talk about this before, Signum Academy Clubs is a brand new program that we are launching now. Uh, and it is an extracurricular program uh, for kids, uh, you know, in the American school system uh, from grades three through 12 uh, outside of America for like eight to 18 year olds, essentially. Um, and um, uh, so anyway, so yeah, that is... Um, uh, the, the, the clubs are opening now, and this is oh, we are really excited about this program. We've gotten some uh, really enthusiastic registrations and, and uh, been uh, excited to, uh, to talk to people. We've got folks from around the world. We just had uh, a student uh, from Istanbul sign up last night, which is really cool. So, you know, we're having we'll have a, uh, you know, a, a fairly broad uh, international uh, 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 population in our clubs class. It's going to be really fun. Um, so anyway, it's um, I just wanted to make sure that folks were aware of that. This is a really, really great option for uh, for homeschoolers, especially. But it's also something that would be, you know, we're, we're getting towards the time um, when, you know, thinking about uh, summer projects and uh, summer camps and things like that. Uh, and certainly being able to be involved in a really great book club discussion or a creative writing workshop or uh, uh, learning some uh, some languages in a really fun environment, either conversational languages or uh, or, or historical languages uh, in translation. That would be, you know, a really, really cool summer project. Um, so anyway, that is uh, that is the other thing I definitely wanted to remind folks of. Uh, so thanks for that. And hey, uh, fun to see some folks on uh, the YouTube channel who uh, have just caught up. Uh, Carolus Rex has uh, been listening in, since January and just caught up with us live. That's pretty good time, Carolus. I mean, I gotta say, if you caught up on the previous 175 episodes in only two months, that's hardcore right there. That is, uh, that is, <laughs> that is pretty serious business right there. So congratulations on your, on your efforts there. Um, and, um, yeah, yeah. Sarah Detweiler says it was a year of listening, uh, until she caught up. Absolutely. Um, so, um, anyhow, that's, um, uh, that's, uh, that's, that's, that's good stuff. So, yeah. And I know Ray, I know it's very, um, it often happens that, you know, people get caught up and fall behind again and catch up again. That's the way life is. So I always appreciate when folks can attend live. Obviously, you know, uh, I understand our asynchronous listeners and I'm, I'm really glad for folks, you know, who get the chance to watch it asynchronously or listen asynchronously. Um, but, um, but of course, it's always fun to interact with folks live. So I always enjoy uh, seeing people. I, I totally understand. See, it's hard because on the one hand, I want to say, like, don't, you know, you don't have to listen to the whole thing. Just jump in where we are and, and you know, take, a, you know, you've read the book before. So, like, just jump in and talk about the, the Council of Elrond with us, even though you haven't. But, like, I mean, many of you know me. I'm a, like, you know, dedicated, almost obsessive completionist. So, uh, you know, I, 
would I do that? You know, would I jump ahead to episode 176 in a podcast I just started listening to? That would be um, unlikely. So I get it. I totally understand. But anyway, I'm really glad um, that um, that you guys are uh, that you guys are are uh, are listening. And for those of you who don't know, uh, you know, for, I'm restreaming this on a bunch of different places at once. Many of you are watching it on YouTube. Many of you are watching this on Twitch. Uh, some of you are watching this on Facebook or on on Twitter. Uh, and I just wanted to. Uh, you know, you'll hear me interacting with a lot of people that you don't see uh, comments for there. Um, that's because we have a Discord channel uh, where folks come in, and that's the sort of the primary place where the majority of the the live audience and the, uh, the 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 questions and the discussion are happening. I have another window up to monitor YouTube chat and Twitch chat and stuff, and so I I, I see that there. Um, Often, but uh, uh, the most, the majority of the time, you'll hear me interacting with the folks on Discord. Um, and if you go to Mythgard.org to the Exploring the Lord of the Rings page, you can get information on our Discord channel there. Um, uh, so uh, you're welcome to join us uh, there for the for the class discussion there. <laughs> Belongsmon says it's where the cool kids are. Well, you know, uh, you know, kinda, <laughs> kinda. Um, but um, anyway, okay. So. Let us get back into the text then. Um, Tom Bombadil. We've just been talking about Tom Bombadil. And Glorfindel has some things to say. Uh, this is, uh, you know, this these next few slides are basically the majority of the lines that Glorfindel has in the entire book, uh, which is fun. Um, but, um, okay. But in any case, said Glorfindel, remember, he is his, what he is immediately resp responding to is Gandalf saying um, uh, he, Tom Bombadil would be a most unsafe guardian, and that is answer enough, basically. And Glorfindel adds, but in any case, said Glorfindel, to send the ring to him would only postpone the day of evil. He is far away. We could not now take it back to him, unguessed, unmarked by any spy. And even if we could, soon or late, the Lord of the Rings would learn of its hiding place and would bend all his power towards it. Could that power be defied by Bombadil alone? I think not. I think that in the end, if all else is conquered, Bombadil will fall, last as he was first, and then night will come. I know little of the Arwain save the name, said Galdor. But Glorfindel, I think, is right. Power to defy our enemy is not in him, unless such power is in the earth itself. And yet we see that Sauron can torture and destroy the very hills. What power still remains lies with us, here in Imledris, or with Círdan at the Havens, or in Lorien. But have they the strength? Have we here the strength to withstand the enemy, the coming of Sauron at the last, when all else is overthrown? I have not the strength, said Elrond. Neither have they. Okay. Um, so... Uh, yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah, uh, sorry, yeah, my slide title here is Resistance is Useless. No, I wasn't quoting Star Trek. Um, uh, I was quoting Hitchhiker's Guide, actually. Um, so it's not, um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, yeah, I was exactly, I was quoting the Vogons, not the Borg. Uh, uh, Similar, but um, uh, <laughs> but anyway, um, it's a good thing to shout. Resistance is useless, apparently. Um, anyway, um, so 
let's start with the first paragraph. Um, I, 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 I don't want to go backwards up the slide today. I want to go down uh, this slide. Glorfindel's point is well taken, right? I think Glorfindel makes an excellent point here at the beginning. Um, yeah, and so on the one hand, the first question was, which was a very sensible question, right, was, hey, if um, Tom Bombadil is not controlled by the ring, right? If the ring does, in fact, have no power over him, or if he has a power over the ring, you know, before Gandalf's clarification, um, isn't he the ideal person to give it to? And I was talking last week about how I think that one of the primary first issues there is less what should the ultimate fate of the ring be, and more whom can we trust to give this thing to? I mean, like, what are the options here? Right. And that seems to be the context in which um, Aristor, it was Aristor, wasn't it, uh, was bringing up Tom Bombadil. Not like all of our problems will be solved if we just give the ring to Tom Bombadil necessarily. Right. But, hey, you know, we've got to fi- step one. We've got to figure out who's going to walk out of this room holding the ring. Right. Whom is this council going to win? Because whatever we do, somebody has to take it, right? Somebody's going to have to bear the ring or use the ring or whatever it is that we decide, right? Um, And uh, so somebody has to either, if it's going to stay here in Rivendell, who's going to have custody of it? Um, If it's going to, if we're going to take it somewhere else, somebody has to carry it there and only one hand at a time can wield the one. So who's it going to be? And so Tom Bombadil does present himself as a very attractive candidate for that position as he seems to be wholly unaffected by it in ways which is clearly not true of Gandalf and presumably is not true of Elrond or Galadriel or Círdan either. Now, we never get information directly about this with Círdan. Um, nor really directly with Elrond, um, but it seems pretty safe uh, to conclude that they would be less perfectly safe holding the ring than Tom Bombadil appears to be. Um, so, um, so yeah, so again, it's a very sensible suggestion. So what Gorfindel seems to be doing here is not so much objecting to Aristor's suggestion of sending it to Tom Bombadil, but kind of recalling the more important question. Like, yes, that is really an urgent question, right? An urgent question, who is going to take the ring? And of course, I'm, I'm going back to the discussion we were having about Elrond's meandering response to Gandalf's story um, and how he meanders from Saruman betrayed us. That's really bad. This could happen to other people. Everybody should be really careful about that. P.S. Aren't hobbits cool? Isn't that interesting? Check out those hobbit guys who have been holding the ring already for, you know, decades. Yeah, that's kind of interesting. I mean, the logic of that paragraph in the context of the debate that is immediately going to follow it, right, does seem very, very conspicuous as we can see Elrond kind of seeding the ground, right, uh, for the direction that he's um, uh, that he's kind of moving in. Um, but... Um, uh, anyway, okay, so um, the but again, what, what Gorfindel is doing is pushing it past that important question uh, to say, even if we could, even if we did, um, you know, when he says, but in any case, right, he's saying like, okay, like maybe he is an unsafe guardian, and it would just be a bad idea on the whole, right? But even if he, even if it weren't. 
right? Even if Tom Bombadil could be trusted not to chuck it away or to, uh, you know, to forget about it, um, to send the ring to him would only postpone the day of evil. The day of evil is coming, right? Um, Sauron is eventually going to find out where the ring is hidden and he's going to come after Tom Bombadil, you know, this this can only end in one way. If we give it to Tom Bombadil, the best case scenario, again, even assuming Gandalf is wrong about him chucking it away or whatever, um, uh, the best case scenario is that in the end, this is going to come down to Sauron versus Tom Bombadil, right? Sauron is going to come in force to attempt to wrest the ring uh, from Tom Bombadil uh, and, you know... Uh, could that power be defied by Bombadil alone? And he doesn't think so, right? Um, notice he does give Bombadil a lot of credit. I mean, he does say that even if everything... He sug suggests that even if everything else in the world is conquered, Bombadil might fall last, right? Um, but at the end of the day, it's not going to matter, right? It's not going to... Um, create the difference. Now, Gilgo Eddy asks if uh, Gorfindel knows uh, Bombadil. He doesn't say explicitly. Galdor is going to say, I know little of Yarwain save the name, but um, I know it should be Yarwain. I'm sorry. That's another one of those I've been mispronouncing it since a child thing. And I don't say it often enough to have corrected myself over the years, so I still slip on that one. Um, but um, anyway, so Gorfindel does not give any such qualifier. Right. When he says his thing. Um, so presumably he does know Bombadil better than Galdor, which would be no surprise as he lives closer to him uh, than Galdor does um, and presumably travels about a bit more than Galdor from the Havens. That's just a guess. But if Galdor is, you know, um, one of the chief counselors of Cirdan. Kieran the shipwright is tolerably sedentary uh, in the sense that he has not. I mean, when was the last time he left? Uh, uh, you know, the Havens. It's um, yeah, yeah. Um, but um, anyway, okay. Um, so yeah, Sam, I do think that based on the way Elrond talks about Bombadil, can we? You know, he says, can we conclude that many of the elves around here know about them? Yes, yes. Not everybody. I mean, like, I don't. I would be surprised if Legolas had heard of him. Maybe he has, but, you know, I don't know um, how, you know, sort of famous he was. Um, I think that it's another reason why um, Elrond brings up Bombadil and his own ancient history and how things have changed since he was last on the Westward Roads, um, because um, he, um, Elrond, that is, seems to be acknowledging that Tom Bombadil is not going to be universally known to all of the elves. So one of the things I think he's doing is saying, yeah, I'd almost forgotten about this guy. You might have forgotten about him, too. Uh, let me throw some context at that. Frodo told his story, but maybe you don't remember that there were... You remember that, that, that weird guy, you know, who used to roam around a little bit more back in his wild, crazy bachelor days, right? Before he settled down and married a flower. Um, so, yeah, yeah, him. Um, uh there may well have been some of the elves in the room who were, have been, since Elrond said that, being, oh, yeah, that guy, he's, he's a caution and no mistake. So um, it's, I think, very, very possible. Um, yeah, Timothy, uh, I agree. There is a kind of uh, irony 
right, that Bombadil, who is always the first to get cut from adaptations, gets so much consideration here, right? Yeah, there is an irony there, right? It's uh, uh, totally extraneous to um, anyone adapting it for totally understandable reasons, especially in Jackson's case when you're trying to compress to a feature film. Um, but um, uh, but anyway, yeah, the, um, uh, th- there, there is an irony here that they're like, okay, before we talk about anything else, right, let's discuss Tom Momadil. So, yeah, there is, uh, there is some kind of fun irony there. Um, and I agree, Bricktails, you'd know him by his boots, right? You, know, you remember that guy with the, um, you know, with the yellow boots and the blue jacket? Oh, yeah, right, yeah, him. Um, um, yeah, okay. Um, Right. Now, Fourth Dauntless says, if Sauron got the ring after conquering literally the entire world, maybe it wouldn't matter that much. Uh, Denethor makes a similar, though much more Baroque point. Um, yes, yes. Um, now, I would say that... Um, I would say that... One of the factors that has that is interestingly... It is interesting to me that it is not emerging here. Is... This is going to be more explicit by the return of the king, right? There are basically three states where, with, as far as Sauron and the Ring are concerned, right? There are three possible states that the situation could persist in. Either A, Sauron recovers the Ring. B, uh, the Ring is... Destroy, you know, is is destroyed, is re- completely removed from the picture and cut off from Sauron. So let's just make it more general that way. The ring is completely removed and cut off from Sauron. Or three, the ring is withheld from Sauron, but still in play, still operative, right? Um, and it's pretty clear by the time we get to the return of the king, it's pretty clear that two out of those three scenarios are going to end in disaster. Sauron doesn't even have to get the ring back in order to win the War of the Ring. Should the ring just remain hidden, Sauron's winning this war. Um, Gandalf is going to be pretty clear about that by the time we get to the debate of the captains after the Pelennor Field, for instance. Right? Um, So there's like... Even if all three of those states were equally likely, which is certainly not true, there's you know at least um, a two, a two out of three chance, right, that uh, uh, that Sauron is winning uh, this battle only if it gets removed completely out of play, thus permanently weakening Sauron. That takes him out of play, right? So um, you've got the one in which Sauron definitely loses, and the other two in which he wins. Obviously, scenario A is the nightmare scenario, right? He gets the ring back. Um, but even just withholding the ring from him, so this is uh, bringing me back forth, Dauntless, um, to um, the point that you were making uh, about um, uh, Sauron getting the ring after conquering the entire world, right? That even holding out against him, like holding the ring and trying to prevent him getting it back, um, is ultimately uh, not going to be a doable situation. Now, I think that seems to be less clear here. Um, That seems to be less obvious to everybody involved in the council. Now, of course, this can be historically explained by saying Tolkien hadn't worked that out yet. But I think it's also perfectly well explained within what we know at this point, just by saying 
they haven't seen this yet. They don't know the full extent of things yet. They don't know the full extent of Sauron's power. They don't know where he's situated. Um, they're going to be time. I mean, what we're getting to in that second paragraph, what Galdor is going to say, it's not going to work. Right. Bo both of them are saying Tom Bombadil does not have the strength to defy him. Um, the only possibility, the only possible shot of being able to go toe to toe with Sauron, ringless Sauron, you know, in state three and, um, and, and beating him, keeping him off, um, is in, you know, Lorien or Imladris or, uh, the Grey Havens. Um, and Elrond shoots that down right away. Nope. Wouldn't work. Wouldn't work. We couldn't do it. Um, so even without, so even here we can see that even without the ring, they're not, they can't win. They, he doesn't think that they can win if Sauron himself comes after them. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, good. Flamifer, you were just asking about this, um, quoting Gandalf back from the Shadows of the Past when he says to Frodo, the enemy still lacks one thing to give him strength and knowledge to beat down all resistance, break the last defenses, and cover all the lands in a second darkness. He lacks the one ring, which does imply he's still defeatable so long as he doesn't have, so long as we can just keep it out of his hands. Right? We just play keep away for long enough, then we can win, right? Um, I think there are two answers to that question, Flamifer. Uh, first of all, why do I think Elrond is more pessimistic than Gandalf? Because he's one of the principles in question. Gandalf there might be perhaps making a faith statement uh, about the odds of the White Council or of Imladris or Havens or the Havens or Lorien right in this fight. Um, he's not the one. He's not doing that assessment from inside, right? Elrond is. And Elrond is saying, yeah, no. Like, you know, Elrond has met Sauron. Right? I mean, he's like, I met Sauron. I have, fight, I have fought with Sauron. I can't. No. No. Um, can I take him on single-handedly? If he were to come here in person and try to break into Imladris, could I keep him out indefinitely? No. No, I couldn't do that. Elrond knows. Gandalf is talking about other people. Right? So that's one thing. Gandalf just has less information than Elrond does uh, because his information is not firsthand uh, in that way. Uh, the Second thing that I would say about that is that we have to remember the situation is more dynamic than we sometimes give it credit for. And that in several ways. Their knowledge and information is more dynamic. Gandalf himself has learned some new information since he made that statement to Frodo. Um, he has seen, remember, he didn't know that Saruman had, had betrayed them yet. He thought that they had one more very powerful ally than they, in fact, did have, right? Um, and he also had not encountered the Witch King and the other riders, uh, you know, the other Nazgul out in the field recently yet. Because remember that both the Nazgul and Sauron himself are also themselves dynamic. They are changing over time, right? Their power is increasing. And, um, you know, Gandalf hasn't encountered Sauron, you know, indirectly since he, you know, performed a home invasion back at Dol Guldur, right? Um, Sauron has, 
advanced, as it's called, since then. Um, there has been there has been a change uh, to Sauron's situation, and we don't know the full extent of that change. Um, uh, and I th- again, I think that there is. There is there is additional data that Gandalf has gotten since then. So Flamifer would even Gandalf say precisely the same thing now that he said to Frodo. Um, I don't know that he would. Um, I also have to say that um, it's also possible Flamifer that that statement when he said that to Frodo was um, rhetorical as well. That it, it, you know it. Is he? I'm not saying he's lying to Frodo, um, but could there be some ex, some degree of like a rhetorical exaggeration? What he's emphasizing is the worst case scenario, right? Is that the ring has to be kept from Sauron? This is what Frodo needs to know. Frodo needs to know that the the worst case scenario with Sauron gets the ring back, right? Because what matters right now is that Frodo has to understand how important it is to keep the ring secret and to keep it safe, right? And to uh, be on guard against any spies of the enemy, lest Sauron discover. I mean, he needs to understand um, that this is a really, really big deal, right? So is Gandalf sort of emphasizing that state of the case because he's performing a, a completely thorough and objective assessment of Sauron's military strength in that moment in his conversation with Frodo, or because he is trying to convey a particular point to Frodo. I think the latter is very plausible there. But again, I also do think that he's getting more information uh, as, um, uh, as, as time goes on. And for Thoughtless, you're right to point out that Boromir has a pretty good idea of how powerful Sauron has become. Yeah, he does have some more recent information than, um, and that's one of the reasons why I think that his news of the, you know, the power that was fa- that they encountered on the battlefield is relevant, right? I mean, Gandalf already knows that the Nazgul have come have crossed the river and come abroad. That's not news to him. Um, but again, uh, Boromir has sort of felt the um, uh, the. Um, the impact, you know, the growth of the power of Mordor uh, more recently uh, than most of the rest of them have. Um, So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, Okay. Um, So, okay. Yes, I agree, Bjarnasoner. Resistance is more possible while Sauron lacks the ring, but winning is impossible either way. Yes, yes, I agree. I agree. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> JD's pointing out everybody's forgetting that they do have Celeborn. Uh, you're right. And I'm sure that Sauron would be shaking in his boots if he also were remembering that. Um, yes, yes. And, and you're absolutely right, Tony, that they have very little idea of his exact military strength because that is still in the process of gathering even when we get to the invasion of Gondor. So, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, Yes. Um, okay. Um, let's see. Good. All right. Um, excellent. Okay. So, if all else falls, in the end, if all else is conquered, Bombadil will fall, last as he was first, and then night will come. Um, another thing to keep in mind is that 
Um, and for Thoughtless, I think this is coming back uh, to addressing one of the points that you made earlier. On the one hand, I agree that the argument begins to feel very compelling, right? That if um, if the enemy is going dis- to take over the entire world except for the old forest, and then uh, you know, and then there's the final confrontation, you know, the final song battle between Tom Bombadil and Sauron. And I completely agree with the general sentiment that a song battle between Tom Bombadil and Sauron would be awesome. Um, I don't know exactly how it would go, but I absolutely think that that would be, um, completely spectacular. Um, but anyhow, um, I think it'd be even, you know, much more competitive than the song, ba- the song battle between Finrod and, and, and Sauron. Um, but um, the counter-argument, of course, Fourth Dauntless, to the argument that says, look, you know, what's the point of this resistance if the whole rest of the world has already been destroyed? Um, the elves have been there before, right? I mean... Sauron has conquered all of the rest of Middle-earth and only the Old Forest is an island remaining in the dominions of Sauron. Kind of sounds like Beleriand and the Isle of Balar, doesn't it? I mean, like, they've been there before, right? They've been there before and resisting, holding out is still... um, Holding out is still uh, uh, definitely a viable option there. Um, so, um, because you never know, you never know what's going to happen, right? You never know what's going to happen. Not only do you never know when the catastrophe might come, but you also never know what's going to happen afterwards, right? Even if they all die and perish, well, night still has not necessarily come. Um, or covering the world with a second darkness, as Gandalf was saying. Sauron still can't do that. He could conquer the world militarily, right? But, you know... Then he's got to hold it, right? Stuff can still happen, right? Who knows? Um, But if he can cover the world with a second darkness, if night, capital N, comes, and several of you are emphasizing the capital letter, and I absolutely agree um, that um, that there's... uh, That's that's clearly important, right? Last as he was first um, is... uh, conferring those on him almost as titles, right? Um, if uh, Tom Bombadil was was first, capital F, right? Um, as Tom himself suggests. Uh, and if instead, you know, by this sort of tragic reversal, he ends up also being last, um, it's not going to matter if after that, night, capital N, comes. Um, and by the way, this, I, you know, when was the first darkness? At the beginning. Like, Melkor's darkness is the first darkness. You know, the darkness that is... We're talking about the night, capital N. Um, We're talking about uh, um, the permanent rule of darkness and evil in Middle-earth. Which, you know, from which no dawn can come. Um... Uh, we're talking about, uh, you know, the ending of the Arda experiment, basically. Um, exactly. The end without hope. Um, uh, ultimately, and Tolkien was very firm about this. The actual word that Tolkien used repeatedly to talk about this um, 
goal, impetus, this uh, tendency in both Morgoth and Sauron was nihilism, that ultimately both of them degenerate into nihilism. They are attempting, they want to simply destroy the world. And remember how you can see this prefigured in the music of the Ainur and the Ainulindale, right? At f- at the beginning, Melkor starts off by trying to play the music better, or rather better from his point of view, right? Uh, featuring more solos by himself, right? A part that uh, gives more glory to him. He wants to upgrade the music. He wants to make better music. In the end, he's just trying to drown it out with a clamorous unison. He's just trying to blast on his trumpet on a single note loud enough to drown out all the rest of the... He, in, in other words, from a musical standpoint... He ceases to be a composer and just is trying to stop the music, to undo the music, um, to reduce music to mere noise. Um, And that is what we see, in fact, in their careers. And again, nihilism is the word that Tolkien used to talk about this, that, um, not in The Lord of the Rings, of course, this is in Morgoth's Ring, we were just reading that in Mythgard Academy recently, um, that as they kind of degenerate into ultimately self-destructive, you know, the, the sort of the, 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 the final self-destructive road uh, down which both of them travel, where that, load, where that road leads is merely to nihilism. Just like uh, hating, resenting and hating everything so much that you just, you would rather destroy it all if you can't control it. If you can't have, you know, universal and uncontested sway, you would rather see everything simply destroyed. And in the end, all of their power, all of their energy is focused not towards building an alternative reality, not towards building a better future, um, better from their point of view, right? You know, uh, uh, to remake the world. They're not trying to remake the world after their own image anymore. They're just trying to smash things. Um, and ultimately, that's what this night, that's what the second darkness is. Um, that's what the night is. The first darkness is the void, I think. It's nothing. It's the nothingness um, within which, or the, the nothingness into which Iluvatar spoke the word Ea, uh, the void into which he spoke the word Ea, and sent the imperishable flame in order to create Arda. Um, in the end... To return to the and again, th- this is ironic, right? Melkor in the beginning, one of the things that led to his fall was his impatience with the emptiness of the void. He wanted to make stuff. He wanted to fill the void with things, right? Um, and in the end, where he comes down to is just he wants to create a second void, right? He wants to smash everything. Um, <laughs> and Lady Lakata says, "Oh, sure, we've had first darkness, but what about second darkness?" Uh, that's exactly Sauron and Melkor's point. Um, so, so yes, exactly. The uh, um, and yes, you are absolutely right, um, uh, Nathan the Wronged. Ungoliant is a fantastic image of this. This is why. I have always felt that Ungoliant and, you know, that image of Ungoliant at last devouring herself, she is, in my mind, like the archetype of what evil looks like in Tolkien. Like, she's like the, the Cliff's Notes version, right, of that, uh, of that path that uh, Morgoth and Sauron both uh, end up uh, 
uh, end up end up going. Marhaus, I would say. By the way, Mel, welcome, Marhaus. I saw you mention, and I love the, your uh, uh, your screen name, by the way. Um, but um, I say welcome. I'm glad you could join us live. Um, but uh, the darkening the darkening of Valinor is, of course, a very important thing. But I would say, Marhaus, that that is itself only an image. It is only a uh, a prefiguring, basically. It is definitely an important prefiguring, right? But that itself also just kind of illustrates, I know the darkening of Valinor is a really big deal, right? But cosmically speaking, it's a small-scale version of what Morgoth is ultimately going to be trying to do. He can't rule the light. He can't control the light. He doesn't want to share the light. He would rather see it destroyed. Um, and so he brings about its destruction. This beauty which he admires, which he desires, um, but in, in the end he chooses not to have it because he can't control it and he would rather have darkness and cover Valinor in darkness, um, thus getting back at his enemies, thus showing that he was the stronger one after all, right? All of those things which ultimately, again, just lead uh, to his own uh, to his own self-destruction. Um, yeah, yeah, and and we we get we get it also with the casting down of the lamps again. That, uh, but again, I think that those things—the darkness that comes after the lamps are thrown down, the darkening of Valinor—all um, of those things are only a kind of foretaste, right, of what it would look like for Night, capital N, uh, to come. Um, yeah. Anyway, okay. Um, so, yeah. Now. Sam, I don't know the answer to that question. Sam says, to create a second darkness like the Void, Sauron would have to destroy all of Ea, right? Could he even do that? Um, no. But the question is, what could he do with Melkor? Who's still around? I mean, he's in outer darkness and stuff. But, um, but what would happen? I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, um, it's possible that even here, using the capital N night, Glorfindel is still only speaking metaphorically. That he's saying the status of Middle-earth post-Sauron's regaining the ring and achieving dominion would be parallel to the capital N night that Morgoth was trying to bring to creation. Morgoth clearly has the juice. Morgoth could have done it. Morgoth could have obliterated the world. Um, could Sauron do that? No, I mean, whatever Sauron does, if Sauron has his little ring or not, is he going to take down Valinor? Uh, no, I'm going with no on that question, right? I don't think he can overpower all of the Valar with his ring or without his little ring, right? Um, so, no, I don't think that, Val that Sauron is capable of doing that. Um, so is Glorfindel speaking metaphorically? Like, as far as concerns Middle-earth, it would be like the night, capital N, has come? Or is he saying, suggesting um, that um, uh, you know, this could lead to a, uh, you know, resurgence of Melkor in some sense? Um, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, the latter seems a little unlikely, uh, but um, uh yeah. You are right, Flamifer, that Sauron was different from Morgoth, um, that he was more interested in rule and less interested in destruction. 
But what Tolkien emphasizes, and again, he talks about this in the Sauron material, the Sauron slash orc material we get at the end of Morgoth's Ring, but what Tolkien is emphasizing there is not that Sauron differs entirely from Morgoth in this, but it's one of the reasons why, or to put it another way, it's uh, what it means to say that he is less far down the road. He's going down that same road. Um, like that's that's that that's the end point. Same end point as Morgoth. Same end point as Ungoliant. In the end, he's going to end up devouring himself. He's already devouring himself. The Ring of Power shows he's well advanced down this path. He is already trying to smash things instead of to rule them. Um, so yes, he differs, Flamifer, but not absolutely. Um, not absolutely. Um, uh, in the sense of being totally different. He's just hasn't gone down the road that far yet and was kind of distancing himself from Morgoth. He could see that Morgoth was losing it, basically, at the end. Um, but it doesn't stop him ultimately from going down the same road. Um, now, Matt, you are absolutely right that the Council of Elrond lacks information that we have, and this is such a crucial thing to keep in mind. It is so easy to assume that the wise, the elven wise in the story must know at least as much as we do, right? But that is absolutely untrue. Don't forget that we are given the benefit of the learning of the wise after the fact, right? Um, uh, the hindsight of the wise is what we have the benefit of. But anyway, uh, Matt goes on to say, we know that this age will end with the small theme overcoming the discord of Melkor and the music of the Ainur. That story clearly shows the night cannot come and will always be banished, but even so, things can get really bad. Yes, yes. Um, yes. Um, and Captain Mo will get back to that question about the Valar and what they would or wouldn't do. Yes, yes. Um, it's a compl that's a difficult question, and I think a complicated one, but, uh, but we'll see. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Nathan, I absolutely, I agree with you. Morgoth, Theonor, Ungoliant, Sauron, Saruman, Denethor all have quite similar paths towards self-destruction. Um, you could add, yes, Gollum, you could add Wormtongue. I mean, it's, it's, yes, definitely, definitely. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, Ray is thinking about the ring as Ouroboros, which is interesting in two ways, right? You know, the whole image of the snake eating its own tail. Um, yes, that is sort of like, um, there's something similar to, you know, Ungoliant devouring herself. But of course, remember, that's what's, Ar that's what's on Aragorn's ring. Um, there is a there is a snake eating its own tail. That was the that was the the symbol of the house of Felagund, um, who gave to Barahir the ring that Aragorn is still wearing around. Um, interesting side note there. Um, but um, Ted Sandyman, yes, Mike, absolutely. Ted Sandyman, you see, I mean, that's the thing. You see it played out in small, just like you see it. I mean. It, it, it does seem a little bit funny to compare Morgoth and Ted Sandyman, but absolutely. Same pattern, different, very different scale, same pattern. Absolutely the same pattern. Yes. Um, but um, anyhow, okay. So, um, uh, all right. Uh, on to Galdor's thing. Okay. Um he thinks that Gorfindel is right, even though he lacks information. I know little of Yarwine save, save the name. 
power to defy our enemy is not in him unless such power is in the earth itself. By the way, um, this is one of the... If you want some data about Tom Bombadil's true nature, Galdor gives us a theory here which uh, gives us more information than we get almost anywhere else. But footnote... We have to remember that we get that information from the guy who says, I know nothing about him, right? So, you know, uh, I'm kind of taking this with a grain of, grain of salt, right? Um, however, um, he is paralleling the... I don't think he is identifying Tom Bombadil with the Earth, right? Um he says, power to defy our enemy is not in him unless such power is in the earth itself. Um, so that Tom Bombadil is connected in some sense with... Okay, when I am talking about Tolkien, I try hard to resist using the word nature with a capital N. Um, because Tolkien doesn't use that word. Um I can't think of a single example in which Tolkien uses the word nature with a capital N in the way that we are wont to toss around the word nature to talk about the natural world. Um, I, uh, so I, I try to resist that, even though it's often tempting. Um, I, you know, it's, um, I try to stick within the vocabulary of the text, and that is not part of the vocabulary of the text. Um, but um, anyway, so Gilgalady, yeah, is he saying that Tom can channel the Earth's power? No, he's... Let me turn around. Let me restate Galdor's sentence there. Um in what I think is logically the same thing, but in a different sequence. If there be power in the earth to resist the enemy, then there might also be power in Tom Bombadil to resist the enemy. Um, it doesn't mean he channels the power of the earth. It doesn't mean that he wields the power of the entire earth, that he is the embodiment of the earth's power in some sense. Um, it is saying there is a likeness in kind and in degree, it seems to me, between the power of Tom Bombadil and the power that is in the earth, right? Um, Tom Bombadil is tied to, he's bound himself to the earth, but I don't think this has to do with his geographical boundaries, uh, necessarily. Um, I think that it is, um, uh, yeah, I said, so Ashnaz was just asking about that. Is it connected to the previous statement that Thomas set bounds for his own power? I don't think so. I don't think so. I think remember the contrast, the most important thing, if we're trying, if we are, if we are to understand what he even means when he says such power is in the earth itself, we have to understand the contrast, ultimately, that he's making. On the one hand, we have Tom Bombadil's kind of power, right? And then we have the kind of power that Elrond, Círdan, and Galadriel have, 
And uh, yeah, I saw it. So, you know, some of you were talking about like, has Galdor kind of outed the three elvish rings of power here? Kinda, yeah. Um, but again, as I've said many times before, this super secret location of who has the elvish rings of power in two out of the three cases has got to be the worst kept secret in the history of Middle Earth, right? I mean, if if um, if you're operating in the late Third Age in Middle-earth and you're trying to guess where two of the three elvish rings are in Rivendell and Lothlorien are not your top two candidates. I have no idea what you're paying attention to. Right. I mean, like seriously. Um, Yeah. I, I, I I just, I can't really think that they're fooling that they think they're fooling anybody about that. Um, But um, uh, anyway. Okay. So, um, They, what is, what power still remains lies with us here in Imladris or with Círdan at the Havens or in Lorien. What power is that? What is the power that lies with us? Um, It's insufficient to say he's referring to the Elvish Rings of Power. The Elvish Rings of Power at the very best, the most that the Elvish Rings of Power do is serve as amplifiers. They don't bestow a power that didn't exist. How could... I mean, there's like some kind of law of conservation of energy at play here, right? Um, Celebrimbor is not capable of creating an artifact that like makes him a god, right? That grants him power that was utterly alien to him before, right? You know, if he was this strong before with the ring, oh, now he's ten times as strong as he used to be. Now he can challenge the guy. No way. Like, it's just not how it works. He is putting his own power into the rings, right? He is investing it with their own power. Now, can he use it to amplify it in certain ways and maybe apply it in certain different ways and therefore, you know, create different effects than could be created without the rings and stuff? Yeah, sure. Quite possibly, right? Um, but, But again, he's not... For him to create a ring that makes him, you know, unstoppable would be like him trying to pull himself up by his own bootstraps. Like, he cannot lift himself up off the ground by main strength, right? And that's kind of that's kind of what that would be like, right? Um, the reason that Sauron, with the ring, is going to be unstoppable um, is because, A, he is weaker without it, right? So they're fighting Sauron Sauron is fighting them with one hand behind his back. Right. They are fighting the minor league version of Sauron right now. So he would just be way, way stronger uh, than he is now on the one hand. But on the other hand, the particular amplifier, right, the direction in which he has channeled his energy through the ring is in order to enable him uh, to more effectively dominate the wills of others in order, in other words, to beat down any resistance against him. So yes, it's going to be easier for him to overcome resistance. That's the whole play that he made in making the rings of power. Right. But again, does it, does it make Sauron 10 times more powerful than before he made the ring? No. Where's he going to get that power? It's got to come from somewhere. Um, uh, so anyway, um, that's, uh, that is, um, I think relatively. So again, 
is he invoking? Is he indirectly alluding to the three elvish rings when he refers to Imladris, the Havens, and Lorien? Absolutely. I have no doubt that he is making a veiled reference to that not very well-kept secret. But, um, but that's not the point. The point is not that, like, the elvish rings of power are these massive and unstoppable weapons. It's the wielders, as one of you said just a minute ago, it's the wielders that matter, not the rings. Um, and where does their power, um, where does their power come from, right? Um, and Fourth Dauntless, I agree with you. I, I also wonder if this is why Aregion fell. Uh, Celebrimbor and the other smiths had to expend so much strength forging the rings that they couldn't resist when Sauron came for them. I think it may well have weakened them um, in that way. I think that's very, that's very, that's very plausible. Um, so, <laughs> exactly, rings don't kill people, people kill people. Uh, Nathan, that's exactly it. Uh, rings don't resist Sauron, elves resist Sauron. And where does the power of the elves come from? Answer, not Arda. Not Arda. They do not fight with the power that is in the earth itself. They have their own power. They have their own strength of their own wills, right? Their own uh, fear, to use the uh, the elvish word that Tolkien invents later on after he wrote The Lord of the Rings. Um, and that comes for, exactly. Tralalalali is where the power comes from, Aranas. You are utterly correct about that. It comes from them. Their wills, their songs, their making, their power, the powers of their spirits and bodies, right? Primarily spirits, but also bodies. Um, that is, that's, that's the power that he's referring to. And that power does not come from the earth itself. It comes from Iluvatar, direct from Iluvatar. Because Iluvatar, that's why they're called the children of Iluvatar, the elves and the men, right? When a new baby elf, is, when a mommy and daddy elf love each other very much and have a baby elf, right? The baby elf is, given, is gifted a fea, a soul, by Iluvatar. It comes from outside Arda. Right. It is an alien power in that sense. Right. And so what I think Galdor is saying here is you have there is a certain power. There's a certain potential within Arda. Right. Kind of coded into Arda uh, as in its in its creation. Right. Um, through the music and everything else. Um, Tom Bombadil is part of that system. He is part of that system. Um, he is operating within that system. The elves come from outside. They are real, and they, and and Galdor is saying it is from. A, if we don't resist, if we don't resist Sauron, the earth itself can't do it. The power that is in Arda can be dominated by Sauron, as it was dominated by Melkor. Um, Tom Bombadil is bounded by Arda is restricted to within Arda. He is, he is a subset of the Arda system. The elves are added to that system from outside it. Um, so anyway, um, does that, um, does that make sense? Does the power in the earth, is, is, uh, is the power in the earth similar to the spirit of Karathras? Tony asks. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Karathras is part of that system too. Definitely, definitely. Um, and yes, I agree, Fourth Dauntless, that the sub-creative power of the elves is what let them make the Great Rings, but even that isn't enough? Yes, exactly, exactly. 
Um, uh, yes. Flamifer asks if Tom is one of the Ainur, which he must be, then does he not come from outside Arda? Yeah, sure, but he's bound in Arda. Again, he's part of the system now. They are bound to Arda. Its life is theirs, as it says in the Aino Lindale. Um So, yeah, yeah. And again, that's, what, that's the connection. That's the identity between Tom Bombadil and the Earth itself, right? And it does come back around, Ashnazg, uh, to what you were saying before. Um, I think it does become relevant to his the bounds that he sets on himself because um, the idea that some of these spirits, some of these spiritual creatures that are at large in the world, a few of whom we meet, not very many, but a few of whom we meet, Tom Bombadil, Goldberry, Karathras, um, uh, we, 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 we meet some of them. Um, they are bound to the system, but they're also local, right? They're, like, Karathras is not going to bother anybody, you know, in Dal Amroth, right? Like, he's bound uh, to that place. Um, and so his power is, you know, there isn't the power, not that he necessarily wants to, but um, there's no power in Karathras to resist Sauron unless the power is in the Earth itself as well, right? He is part of a system, but he is, um, he is, kind of identifying himself with that particular part of the system. So in that way, I do think, Ashnaz, that it does relate to his... I don't think that he's... Galdor is referring merely to the boundary lines. But in that sense, I think it does. Tom Bombadil has, has at the very least, restricted himself to being a genius loci, right? A spirit of a particular region tied to that particular region. He's part of the system. They're all part of the system. Manway is part of the system. The system that is Arda. And I'm using system not in the bureaucratic sense or the political sense. I'm using it in the physics sense. Um, you know, when you talk about a particular contained system, right? Um, just meaning everything that is. Like, you know, when you talk about like a closed system, Arda is a closed. When the, when the Valar enter it, it becomes a closed, well, almost a closed system. There's one mechanism through which new elements are fed into the otherwise closed system, right? And that is Iluvatar, who makes deposits into the closed system in the spirits of all of the children of Iluvatar who are born, but he also makes withdrawals from the closed system in the spirits of men when the mortal men die. Um, um, so, anyway. Okay. We're venturing a little far afield into Middle-Earth metaphysics, but so did Tolkien right after writing The Lord of the Rings, so I feel justified in doing it. Um, uh, okay. Um, yeah, Fort Thomas says, what does that say about Tolkien coming from outside to battle Morgoth? That his arrival was, that he was late, right? Yet another way in which I'm like, Tolkien and I have so much in common. Um, uh, uh, being late to things, uh, loving violence, laughing a lot uh, at inappropriate things, and uh, being <laughs> probably of no avail as a counselor. Uh, but anyway, um, uh, uh, yeah, so Tolkien is not an exception to the rule in the sense that, you know, he's not bound to the system or something. He seems to be bound. He just does it on a different schedule from the rest of them. So I, I don't even know. Um, but um, anyway, okay. Um, 
Right, good. And GDC, I agree, and a couple people were mentioning this before, if his very nature didn't tie him to the earth, his marriage vows did. Right, so uh, if he was not originally the genius loci of that particular spot, he has become so by marriage, right? Uh, by marrying uh, the local um, river daughter. Um, exactly. Um, and yes, a lot of Einar choose not to enter. Yeah, yeah. So again, like, by what special dispensation of Iluvatar is Tolkas permitted to come in late? You know, I don't know. You know, I, you know, we're not privy to that side conversation. Uh, you know, Tolk does Tolkas waffle at the beginning? Is he is he having a nap? I, I, I you know, and, and comes late to the party. I have no idea. If so, my identification with Tolkas would grow even further. Um, but um, uh, but yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so, absolutely. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Sarah was asking, if, we might as well continue the metaphysics discussion. Uh, if the system is closed, then where does free will fit in? Yeah, so when I talk about a closed system, I don't mean, a, um, that doesn't mean a, a predetermined. It, it, that's, that's not an argument for determinism, to say that everything is, is bound to happen in uh, you know, one way. They can, you know, just as... Again, from a physics standpoint, um, something can be a closed system, but that doesn't mean that things within that system can't operate on each other, right, and change local circumstances. Um, there can be real actions and real choices and real consequences within the system, right? Um, uh, that's that. Yeah, exactly. Closed systems still have still have entropy. Sure, sure, absolutely. Um, uh, so um, anyway, anyway, uh, so that's. Um, uh, so yeah, I don't that I don't think that creates you know a, a, a sort of a problem there at all. Sorry, this is the face I'm making as I'm trying to backtrack up my own tortuous conversational trail in order to figure out how on earth I got here from where we were and how to get back. Oh yes, such power in the earth itself, and by contrast, what power still remains lies with us here in Imladris. Um, but I'm glad we talked about this because I think this is, I, I already see, I'm already beginning to see, thanks to our discussion here, an answer to a question that I didn't know before, um, which I think is going to come up on the next slide. Um, so we'll come back to that. As I say, I'm going to be really glad that we talked about this. But um, uh, in um, what power still remains lies with us. Galdor's insight here is that it is not the remit, ultimately, of Tom Bombadil to oppose Sauron. Um, the Earth itself, like, the system isn't going to just kick Sauron out, right? It's not just going to reject Sauron um, because of free will. Those within... They are part of the, you know, the Ainur that have descended in, the Maiar and the Valar, are now part of that system, but they too can operate freely within it. Um, and if Sauron is going to torture and destroy the very hills, um, he's not going to be prevented doing that by the system uh, itself, by the, uh, um, by the, the whole, um, you know, by the world itself. Um, so some of you were saying, when is tor uh, Sauron tortured and destroyed the very hills? Ask the Antwives. 
ask, think about that. Think, uh, remember ahead uh, to Frodo and Sam before the Black Gate, after they get through the Black Marshes, when they think they've seen plenty of disgusting, right? And they think they're already sufficiently appalled. And then they get uh, to the no man's land outside the Black Gate. Um, and they see that is the description of the torture and destruction that Sauron has wrought upon the very hills there. Um, so yeah, it's totally happened already. Um, but I would also ask us to remember back much more generally, um, uh, to remember back much more generally about the kind of desolation that always happens when someone's going bad, right? The desolation of Smaug, the desolation, which, uh, Saruman is already beginning to spread around Isengard, um, which might look purely utilitarian, um, uh, but it isn't purely utilitarian. Um, and it's one of the things I dislike this element. Well, I won't go so far as that. I didn't wholly and enthusiastically support the decision to emphasize in the films to emphasize Saruman's purely pragmatic. Like he cuts down all the trees just because he wants to feed the fires, right? He's got it's, it's like an ends and means question, right? That's definitely involved. I don't want to say that they're making that up and that that's wrong. It's not wrong. That's absolutely what Saruman himself probably says to himself, right? I'm not just creating. Uh, you know, a hideous, disgusting, um, dead wilderness around myself. Uh, I'm, this is just, you know, the power of industry has to move forward, folks. Right. Um, but exactly, Aranas, the wanton hewing. Right. That's that's that is also characteristic of Saruman as well. Um, it is part of what happens. Like it, you destroy, like life is destroyed around you, right? You get the death. Sauron, or like Smaug, sorry, when I'm thinking of the desolation of the dragon, Smaug didn't like just set out to destroy the countryside all around for fun. It just happens, right? And it happens with Sauron too. So in fact, we see not only is it possible for Sauron to torture and destroy the very hills, it's almost inevitable that the hills are going to be tortured and destroyed by him. Um, uh, yes, exactly, Roger. That sentence about the mountains vomiting the filth of their entrails upon the lands about. Um, that's, I've always loved that sentence. That's, uh, yeah, um, uh, awesome. Yes, that's, that is exactly the part I'm talking about. Um, his destruction, his, uh, torturing of the hills. Um, Yes, and of course we see it in Mordor, right? Um, and uh, remember that Frodo, you know, Frodo's insight um, when Sam sees Bag End uh, and how horribly wrecked it is at the end, you know, he says this is worse than Mordor, and Frodo says this is Mordor, right? Or one of its works. Um, this is what happens, you know. This is this is what it looks like. Um, but um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, exactly. Anyway, so, um, good. Um, good. Drakentarachne, I agree. There is a lot that Saruman does 
Um, even considering Dragon Tarachne exactly as you're saying about Saruman's decorative choices, right? Um, that is to say, you can cut down trees for firewood um, without replacing them with iron poles connected by chains, <laughs> right? Like, you don't have to do that, actually. Um, yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, okay, good. Um, exactly, Sam. At some point, Saruman definitely ordered some people to dig up beds of flowers for no reason. Yes, he absolutely did. Um, uh, Saruman totally stopped mowing around uh, the flowers in his yard uh, at uh, at that point. No question. Um, uh, okay. Um, so, all right. Um, enough about the power of in the earth. Though we'll come back to it, as I say. Um, have they the strength in Imodris with Cirdan or in Lorien? Have we here the strength to withstand the enemy, the coming of Sauron at the last, when all else is overthrown? I like his addition there. Um, have we here the strength? It's like it occurs to him, right? He's like, okay, obviously the best chance, you know, for no particular reason, uh, the greatest power among the elves still in Middle-earth is concentrated at the havens in Imudris and Lothlorien, having nothing to do with jewelry at all. Uh, but there it is. Um, and then it's almost like he has a second thought. As like he's looking around the table and being like, actually, we've got kind of an all-star team right here. Right? I mean, it's true, Cirdan and Galadriel aren't here. Oh, and neither is Celeborn, but nobody notices. Um, but... Um, uh, but, uh, but I mean, hey, look, right? I mean, we've not only got Elrond here and Aristor, who's always here, and Gorfindel, but, like, I'm here now, too. And, like, and Gandalf's here. And, yeah, I mean, this is, uh, this is, uh, we've got, and, you know, uh, like, Glowen, in case that helps, and, you know, Bilbo. <laughs> anyway, like, the point is, we have some, uh, you know, and Aragorn's here and Boromir's here. I mean, hey, like, uh, have we the strength? Have we here the strength? Maybe this is, and, and I, I think the hint here is that Galdor is asking. Remember Elrond back at the beginning when you said that you hadn't called us? That we were called here for some purpose? Maybe that's it, right? Maybe the purpose we were called together for is to withstand the enemy. Right? Like, we've been brought together because if we band together, then between us... And don't forget Sam, Athelas, you're totally right. Um, uh, we, uh, maybe, maybe this is it. Maybe this is the, the all-star team that Iluvatar is bringing together uh, by Providence in order to resist Sauron. Does that, is that plausible, Elrond? Does that work? Um, have we here the strength to withstand the enemy, the coming of Sauron at the last when all else is overthrown? Now, the way he phrases that suggests that he's not actually expecting the answer yes, right? I don't think that he's really saying like, hey, we could do it. Come on, team. Let's band together. I don't, I don't think so. Um, I think that he is, um, but he is, I think, putting it as a kind of extreme case, right? Let me point out that we do have a kind of all-star team here. Right. Do we even 
us here around this table altogether have the ability. Let me throw that out there as a test case. Would it be possible? Um, I have not the strength, said Elrond. Neither have they. Now, Tony, you are right um, that uh, <laughs> GDC is waiting for Nick Fury to show up and tell them about the Fellowship Initiative. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. Um, so, um, the... Elrond's response, and Tony, I've seen your point. I agree that it is interesting that Elrond's response is in the singular. I have not the strength. Neither have they. Um, the first thing I take from that, Tony, is that Elrond is kind of skipping over the last point, right? Because he's he's kind of, Galdor, that is, has kind of made two different... Um, two different steps, right? Um, the best chance we have is in Imodris, the Havens, or in Lorien. Or second step, maybe here. Maybe in this council, right? Um, Elrond doesn't speak to the second one. He only speaks to the earlier one. What power still remains lies with us, here in Imodris, with Kyrdin, or in Lorien. And Elrond's like, yeah, no. I do not have the strength. Um, and neither have they. One thing that I think is definitely happening here is I think that he is answering Galdor's unspoken question. The reason I think that Galdor is here quietly and indirectly outing the rings of power is that he he's trying to ask the question without asking it, right? Part of the way that I would translate Galdor's question is, hey, Elrond, with the use of the Elvish Rings of Power, would you guys be able to do it? I mean, you've got your ring and Sauron doesn't have his, right? So if you keep the ring and you don't, you, you know, you, you, you keep it away, away from Sauron, you've got your ring, he's got no ring, how does that measure up? That seems to be what Galdor wants to ask, but he doesn't want to say that explicitly, so he's indirect. Imogus, Havens, Lorien. Um... And Elrond answers him equally indirectly, right? I have not the strength, neither have they. Forget about it, Galdor. The elvish rings of power are not going to avail to resist Sauron. Uh, neither with me, neither with them. Um, um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, <laughs> would you, could you with a ring? Would you, could you while you sing? Asks JJ. <laughs> yes. Uh, no, his answer is, 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 is no. Uh, no, he would not, could not with his ring. Uh, he would not, could not if he sings. Um, exactly. Um, yes. Um, and I agree, Tony, it does reveal that absolutely no one other than Elrond and Goadriel know that Gandalf has one of the elven rings. Your Kyrdin does, or at least Galdor doesn't know. I mean, Kyrdin knows, right? Because Kyrdin gave it to him. Um, but Galdor still thinks that Kyrdin has it, right? Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, so yes, Sam, I do believe 
And yes, Gandalf knows. You're, of course, correct about that. Uh, um, uh, is Elrond taking efforts to avoid talking about the Elven Rings? Yeah, yes. I think yes, he is. I think he is. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. But anyway, that's a side note. And D. Schwab, I agree that strength seems to be the functional word here. He does not have the strength. Um, he is going to say later on that the power of the rings, this is not what the rings were designed for, right? Um, they, um, they're not about military strength. Yep. Uh, right. Elrond subtly hinting that Galdor should drop the subject, or at least, again, he's addressing his unspoken question with an indirect answer, right? Um, if you were clueless, I mean, like, say you're Gimli, for instance, I, I, I'd be willing to bet that that exchange went over Gimli's head, right? Um, Might have gone over Sam's head, too, because Sam doesn't have so much information about this, right? Um, I... It probably went over Frodo's head, I'm thinking, right? Um, Legolas? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I bet you it went over Legolas's head. Maybe. It depends. It depends. Yeah, I don't know exactly how in the loop they are over there in Mirkwood. But um, but anyway, I do think that he is... Um, he's answering Galdor's question. He's not. I don't think he's chiding him. I don't think he's rebuking him. He's answering his question, um, but without uh, making things explicit that need not be uh, be explicit. Um, it went over Boromir's head for sure, Flamifer. No question. No question. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. So, um, let's just peek ahead at the beginning of the next slide. <laughs> Then if the ring cannot be kept from him forever by strength, said Gorfindel, two things only remain for us to attempt, to send it over the sea or to destroy it. Okay. Um, all right. I, I, I'm going to do this slide modularly, right? Because uh, we're certainly not going to have time to talk about the whole this whole slide. Um, Glorfindel is trying to keep things on task, Right. If the ring cannot be kept for him, from him forever by strength, two things only remain for us to attempt, to send it over the sea or to destroy it. Logically speaking, there are only two possibilities, right? We can't keep it from forever by strength. Um, we could send it away because the Valar could presumably keep it from him by strength. He's not going to Valinor and taking it back. Um, or destroy it. That's it. Right. And Flammerfer says, Boromir thinks, I can think of a third thing. Right? Yeah. Uh, we could wield it. Absolutely. Um, yes. And I agree, Lady Lakata. Um, every meeting chair needs a Gorfindel to keep the discussion on task the way that Gorfindel is doing here. Definitely. Um, uh, yes. Yes. Um, <laughs> right? Althiel points out that we can tell it must have gone over Boromir's head because he didn't interrupt. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, okay. Now, question number one. I'm not sure Gorfindel's being quite fair about this. 
Um, D. Schwab is saying, I see four options. Uh, yes. Yes. Um, there are other options. And indeed, one other option is about to be suggested, right? Uh, you know, Gorfindel himself is about to suggest another. He's about to brainstorm a third option, right? Um, uh, or maybe it's kind of a broadening of Category 1, right? If Category 1 is send it over the sea and the other one is to destroy it, basically this means there are two options. The option number one is keep it away from Sauron forever. Broadly, right? Of which defy him by strength is a subset of that, right? So if we can hang on to it and he can't get it no matter what, then we've achieved option number one. Alternatively, if we send it over the sea and he can't go over the sea to get it, we've also achieved option number one, right? Um, or, of course, we hide it um, forever, right, so that he never finds it, and then we've also achieved... So again, the, we either keep it away from him forever or we destroy it. Okay. Um, so if we broaden it for him in that way, then it kind of works out. I think it's interesting that he mentioned he leads with sending it over the sea, right? Now, of course, it's kind of interesting that Gorfindel is the only one present who has been over the sea and clearly remembers that. Um, I, it is not clear to me the extent to which Gandalf retains that you know his memories of his Valinorian days. Um, that's not obvious to me, um, and Tolkien seems to have shifted a, a, around a bit. Um, when it comes to this, but um, yeah, <laughs> Nathan the Wrong says, "Give it to Arendel would be my vote." Um, uh, sure, sure, yeah, nail it to the mast of Vingalot. That seems like a that seems like a solution. Um, but um, of course, you'd have to send it over the sea first in order to do that. But uh, but it certainly seems like a keep away option for sure. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Vingolot is a long way up there. A long way. He does come down for visits. But not to Middle-earth. Um, okay. So, what if Arendel goes bad? What a disturbing prospect, Sam. Could even Arendel be trusted to be a ring-bearer forever? What a fascinating question that I've never asked myself in my entire born days. No. I don't think he could be trusted. What would he be tempted to do? Come back to Middle-earth. Right? And laid on him undying doom. Right? Um, you know, tit, tit, tit. He, he wants to come home. And he's prevented by his undying doom. Um... Yeah, yeah, he's he's got something he wants, and so therefore would be vulnerable. Um, would be vulnerable to um, uh, temptation by the ring. I would think. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Captain Mo suggests that you just ask Elrond about Arendel and if he could keep it. Yeah, I think bringing up the theoretical question of whether uh, his, you know. Uh, very long estranged father, uh, uh, you know, estranged by distance, separated by distance, uh, would uh, would take the the ring or not is 
would be a very sensitive question, certainly, uh, to ask Elrond. Absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, no, so Tim, we were talking about this last week. I don't know if you're here last week. I don't think Tom Bombadil would be corrupted by it. Um, it has no hold on his mind, which is a good thing, but also, you know, in its way, a bad thing. Um, but, um, right, Ray says, just have Bilbo bring it up. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, but, um, but yeah, yeah. So no, see, it, the Silmarill's not the same. The Silmarill's not going to tempt you to evil. It doesn't. It's not. It's not malicious at all. People get. I think the Silmarils get a, a terrible, undeserved bad rap. The Silmarils are holy. The Silmarils are good. They are the objects of desire. It's the desiring people who are the problem. It's not the Silmarils' fault. I mean, like, yeah, like "Don't hate me because I'm beautiful" is like the entire motto of the Silmarils. Like, it's not their fault. Um, but the. Um, but the ring is a totally different can of worms, right? The Silmaril, when you have it, isn't going to act on you to corrupt you. Like, it's not going to make you worse by you being in its presence. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, exactly. They're just desirable. Yeah, they don't, they don't turn you... Yeah, they don't turn you into a thief. They don't corrupt you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, uh, yes, the, the oath corrupts people, but not, not the Silmarils. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So anyway, yeah, so Arendo and Elwing, they're safe having it, right? Again, I'm not saying they might not have been tempted to, you know, like, it, it, would they have, you know, if somebody else took it from them, would they experience perhaps a temptation to go beat them up and take it back? Maybe they would, right? I don't know. That's the kind of temptation that does come in the way of people who deal with Silmarils. Um, but, uh, but it would not just corrode their spirits and tempt them uh, to evil and destruction the way that the ring definitely would. Um, yeah. Um, Fourth Dauntless says, one could argue that Feanor's poor state of mind was incorporated into his gems, and that's why everyone goes all dragonish over them. Um, that the spirit of greed and selfishness uh, that Feanor definitely had issues with. Yeah, I mean, I can see that, Fourth Dauntless, but I, I don't think so. I, I still don't buy it. And I don't buy it like exactly, Michael. That's just what I was going to say. Uh, after Varda hallowed them, I think that would be moot. I do too. Um, I do too. Um, yeah. But um, anyway, anyway. Yeah. Good. That's that's important. Increasingly irrelevant to our current discussion. But you're right. The Nauglamir was dragon treasure. Uh, and was A, dwarf make, and B, dragon treasure. And so um, after the Silmaril is set in the Nauglamir, there's some other factors, multiple different factors at work there. Um, yes. Um, but um, anyway, we're not going that far afield. Let's get back to Glorfindel. Okay. Um, send it over the sea or to destroy it. Um, okay. Let's stop there. Let's stop there. It's getting late. 
it's 11.30. I should stop. Next time, we will consider the evaluation of these. Elrond is immediately going to come in and say, yeah, um, we can't send it over the sea. Um, I want you to guys to explain this to me next time. This is what I want an answer to. Because um, this is the question I don't know the answer to, Fourth Dauntless. Um, I'll read it. Elrond says, But Gandalf has revealed to us that we cannot destroy it by any, any craft that we here possess, said Elrond, and they who dwell beyond the sea would not receive it. For good or ill, it belongs to Middle-earth. It is for us who still dwell here to deal with it. Why? Why wouldn't they who dwell beyond the sea receive it? Why does it belong to Middle-earth? And why is it for us who still dwell here to deal with it? Why should that be? Elrond just says, no. Not an option. And everybody's like, okay, not an option. Nobody says, can we come back and revisit the whole Valinorian suggestion? Right? Can we smuggle it into Valinor? Like, nobody, nobody asks that. Um... We're not going to talk about this right now. We're finished. But that's the question I want to begin with next time. Why? Why won't the Valar help? Why is Elrond so convinced that the Valar are going to reject it? That they would deport it? That they would turn it away? That it would get turned back at customs if they tried to take it into the West? Um, So we'll talk about that next time. Um, because that's the thing I don't think I've ever really fully understood. I mean, I'm as willing as anybody to take Elrond at his word, you know, and just be like, he must know more than I, so okay. I mean, I've never ha- it's never been to me an obstacle to, um, you know, to, uh, uh, you know, suspension of disbelief or anything like that. I can buy it. I just don't know that I understand it, so I want to talk about it. Okay. All right. Um... Thanks, everybody. Uh, We're going to do field trip now. Thanks, everybody, uh, uh, for joining in the book discussion. Uh, And everyone is welcome to join us for our Lotro field trip this evening. As we are going to resume our discussion of the greater Gladdenfields area, which is totally not called that. Um, Oh, man, I got all kinds of issues here. Let me... uh, Here we go. All right. Here we are. Cool. Okay. No, you can't sail to Valinor yet in Lotro, so we can't go to the Valar and ask them. Absolutely. Okay. Let us examine. So those of you who are... No- See, uh, Valori, I'm not hearing you. Are you... Uh, oh, yeah. I'm, I'm on, maybe I'm on. Still muted. Okay, there you go. There you go. Okay. Excellent. All right. Um, so we're going back to Holtvis in the Vales of Anduin. Okay. Sounds good. Can you hear me? Yep. Can. All right. Awesome. Awesome. All right. So um, let's... Um, so those of you who haven't been with us on our field trips lately, we are... Um, we're we're doing we're doing a we're doing a thorough explanation of uh, exploration of the world of Lotro, looking at it as a sort of static, as it were, adaptation of the Lord of the Rings. This is what I am really interested in uh, in these field trips. 
Um, I'm not interested in the plots. I don't care about the backstory. I mean, I do, but I don't for the <laughs> sake of this. Like it's so like if the story is only explained in the quest text and stuff, I'm not worried about it. I'll get to it later. What I'm really interested in is how they choose to represent it. Um, uh, how have they taken the world and adapted the world? And wh where can we see the interactions between the world that they're making here in the text, um, which I find just fascinating. This is one of the ways in which I think the Lotro adaptation just really um, stands up again and again in some really cool ways. Hang on, I'm still filling everybody. All right. So for a second here, I thought I, I thought we were in Blumgard again. I was about to look for the back door, but no, we're in Holtvis. So yeah, let's hope we remember how to find a way around here. Okay, so we just need to go out to the gate, which is right here. Yeah, yeah. Okay, all right. So yeah, I want. I are, so. are we done with the fellowing? We're probably not. Maybe not. It's useful to have the green dots. Oh, uh, Palandor, we are on uh, Landerval. I've been on Landerval for a while. I'm still willing to visit other servers, but we, especially when we're in higher um, level areas like this, it's a little easier to just do it on uh, on Landerval. And this level, this area is like level 125 or something. 125, 130, somewhere under. Yeah, yeah. So, not a place for newbies. New. Okay. Are we good? Um, well, uh, I've invited everyone, whether they've accepted or not. And okay, and they can, we can... Just hit me a DM and... Right, yeah. Uh, and that's to Linus, right? Uh, L-I-N-U-S-S? Yeah, Linus with two S's. That's there correct. There you go. Okay. He's my... All right, so here's the first thing I want to do. We, I want to go up to the... Where, so it's time to move to... We've done the whole southern half now of the Vales of Anduin. Now I want to go back up to those ruins that we've been looking at. But first, I want to do just one little exploration. Okay, that's just back into Holtvis, so that's okay. It's the north side of Holtvis. I want to just go... I want to go up the road, and I want to bang a right. I want to, <clears throat> I want to, I want to go towards the, the place where we can't go yet. Mm -hmm. Towards... Central Mirkwood, right? Okay, yeah. Middle Mirkwood, as it's charmingly called. Where's the road? Are we there yet? Or is, it, is it up here? Yeah. The map suggests there's a road. Uh, okay. Is it? Uh oh. I got gnats. Okay. Right here. This one, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I just want to see how it goes on until we get to the end of where we can go. Mm. Um. To see, do we get, you know, how Mirkwoodian do we get? Um, Mirkwoodian. You know, does it does it start? Because are we really are we starting to enter? The f ah, see here we have a gate. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. Okay. Yeah. Because this is the oh yeah we have like half the world's gnats chasing us now but um, um okay. So like we, June in Virginia. We can, yeah, it's, it's like June in Virginia. Okay, this is the gate that I was, I was into, I was hoping to see something like this. This is basically the gate that um, uh, they were making for, right? This is the first, 
when the they, I say, um, when the party sets out from Rivendell in The Hobbit, right? When Thorin and company set out from Rivendell, they are aiming for the pass that we took over the mountains, right? Yes. They're aiming for that pass. They get over that pass. And of course, they don't make it over here because they end up somewhere else because they get kidnapped by goblins. But had they not been kidnapped by goblins, this is where uh, they would have um, where they would have ended. Right where they would have entered, rather into uh, Mirkwood. Um, so I, I'm fascinated that they put something here because it would it was a like a route, right? Um, uh, like a, a, a known route through Mirkwood or into Mirkwood, even though of course we're told in the Hobbit that it's since gotten worse. So I was interested to see if there were in fact architecture, and there is with a ring motif. Would you look at that? Yeah. Look at- a sort of diamond and then a ring motif. Yeah, it's almost a, like a star. Yeah. A pointed star or something. Right, that's really interesting. Now the the kind of knot work that we get on the top of the pillars looks very familiar. In fact, it looks dwarvish. Yes. Those like, uh, I don't know if I, I'm tempted to call them like sunburst patterns, but those square panels are panels we've seen on Dwarvish architecture, and the, the, the knot work is also something that we've seen in Dwarvish architecture. Yeah, so, kind of tribal art deco look. Yeah, for the most part, I would say that this looks kind of Dwarvish, but I've never seen that um, ring pattern, this ring pattern here, the interlocking rings. I wonder if this is another collaboration between the Moria Dwarves and Elves. I wonder... Let's see. One, two, three, four, five, six. Well, there are seven between the four-pointed starburst or whatever it is in the corner. Uh, that might be a coincidence. Or not. Or not. I don't know. Um, um, yeah, so Palando, that's exactly what I was trying to figure out. Was this something... Because, again, reminding ourselves of where we are in the bigger picture... Um, Someone in our party is in the midst of Mirkwood, way over there? Um, or is that all of us? No. Yeah, are you talking about the phantom green dot? Yeah. That's That's been a... That's a phantom dot? A okay, fine. That's a phantom dot. Okay. Um, so, uh, okay, that's just... The, the map is goofy? All right, fine. Um, so, yeah, I was thinking it looked like the location of the Elvish Olympics, too. Anyway, so we're here in the Vales of Anduin. Um... Uh, Eregion is over here and we've got Moria over here. So we're the path over the mountains could well have been used even established by the elves of Eregion. That would make sense. We know that they were friends of the dwarves of Khazad-dûm but I gotta think that at least some of the Noldor of Eregion are gonna be like hey, maybe I don't want to take the underground route. Right. Maybe this time I want to go over the top of the mountains. I want to go through the mountain pass because that's lovely. Right. I mean, you got to think that at least sometimes they're going to opt in that direction. Right. So one way to get, for instance, from Eregion to uh, Lothlorien, for instance, back in the day would be to go through Moria, of course. But it's not the only route. And this one, this path that leads over and now down by the Garden Fields, um, 
would certainly be another. Remember, we were looking at how this is very likely the pass that Isildur was making for when he was marching back across, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Keep in mind, this is an important trade route to Erebor. Right, right. Um, Right, for the dwarves uh, and stuff. Uh, Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, So, the gate into Mirkwood here which is what we're looking at, um, uh, which, as you say, is going to be a route towards Erebor uh, and points. Though Erebor is not going to be relevant to Eregion because Erebor post-dates Eregion. Mm-hmm. I think I'm forgetting my dates, but no, I'm not forgetting my dates because obviously the fall of... It post-dates the fall of Moria. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um But anyway, we don't know what kind of interchange there would have been between Eregion and Mirkwood, like, you know, uh, the elves of Mirkwood. Mm-hmm. Um, I, well, not Thranduil, but his dad, uh, you know, Orofer, no, what the, what's his name? Blanking. Oh, man. Gosh. Oh, dang. Yeah, no. What's I'm... his dad's name? The dude who was killed at the Battle of the Last Alliance. Uh, it is Orifer. Okay. I did say this the right thing. Okay. See, I'm just doubting myself now. Okay. Orifer. <laughs> there we are. Right. Yeah. So would they have had contact over there? Perhaps so. So anyway, I'm just trying to think, you know, back to the question of um, who would have been using this and who would have built it. Dwarves do make sense because this would have been part of a dwarf trade route. Because there are the dwarves in the Iron Hills, as, as you yeah. guys are, uh, as JJ, as you were recalling. Um, so even prior to the establishment of Erebor, um, there would still be reason for dwarves to be traveling in this direction. Um, okay. I don't see... How old it is. Yeah, I don't see... Yeah, that is a really good question. Um, is it Second Age or Third Age? Uh, yeah, um, I don't know if I did guess, I would guess third age. Yeah. Because you got to think that most dwarf traffic, most dwarf, yeah, most dwarf traffic through this region is going to go through Moria. Right. I mean, yeah. somebody who's traveling from east to like a dwarf traveling from the Blue Mountains to the Iron Hills. For whatever reason, it's not going to just bypass Moria. You know, I mean, like this just doesn't seem likely to me that they would build a whole separate path, like a Moria bypass. Right. We've, we've seen many times that dwarves travel around Middle Earth on paths that we can't see on the map. Yes, that does happen. Um, so, so yeah, I think third age is more likely, um, when bypassing Moria would in fact be a great idea, right? Uh, post Balrog, um, you definitely want an East West road that does not involve Moria, even if you're a dwarf. Um, uh, so yeah, I agree. GDC stopping at Khazad-dûm would be almost a kind of pilgrimage for dwarves. Yes, I would think so. 
I would think so. Um, but again, not in the post-Balrog era. So if I had to guess, I would guess that this was Third Age. Um, it's all broken down, but it could be old, and, you know, it could be a thousand years old, uh, and therefore justifiably um, uh, tumbled down here a bit. Um, okay, so all right, also but yeah, why Thorn's company knew this room. We're heading towards this gate. Yeah, I don't see any. Yes, exactly. It would explain that. Um, though they were also advised by Elrond and Gandalf to take this road, you know, in Rivendell as well. Um, but I don't see any evidence here. I don't see any evidence of obviously non-dwarvish architecture. Everything I see seems to me to be consistent. I don't see any um, any Numenorean marks. I don't see any elvish, obviously elvish architecture. Um, so I, I do suspect this of being just dwarven. Okay. Well, that's interesting. That's what I wanted to see. So let's go back now to see the also obviously dwarvish um, uh, very large bridge that we've been sort of skirting around and not seeing yet. Um, I wonder if we're going to see that symbol we saw in all the other dwarf bridges. Uh, the Cairo. Yes, the Cairo. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you're right, J.J., that they would have to jog north. Um, but if where we are here, again, go into the map for a second. Um, notice that where we are here is near the Narrows, right? We're not far off the Narrows. Mm -hmm. So it would make sense for the dwarves who were going through um, to... They're going to have to go north to get up to the Iron Hills or certainly to Erebor, but you got to think the dwarves traveling from Eriador through here is going to uh, uh, are going to want to minimize their time in the woods, right? Um, so it would make sense to me to do that. Okay. Anyway, my point is that this still makes sense as a dwarf road, ultimately, yeah. though it's not paved like one. Yeah, this is so cool. Well, there's evidence of what might be flagstones, maybe, once upon a time. But... It's like just really trampled down earth. Like yeah. Yeah. Um, and this but, is more reason. obviously... But even there, it's not 100% clear. Old elven parchment. Oops, I'm being attacked. Someone yeah. want to help me? My armor is not up to Oh, man. Poor Greenstein keeps getting knocked off his horse. Um, okay. Oh, I lost the text where it's, it's all the way up in my... Where is it? Oh, yeah, the... Uh, right, the... The text, the text of the Elven letter. I think it was interrupted. Yeah. T-what? It's... Uh, Oyo 
ever-changing changer of all, Poitonierum Arsaurana Tareio, cleanser of tears and would-be foul. Hmm. Say the translation again, the whole thing. Ever-changing changer of all, cleanser of tears and would-be foul. And would-be foul? Wood as in trees, or, yeah, trees, yeah, wood be foul. Would be so foul? Like, the, the cleanser, the cleanser of, like, tears and and the, the damaged woods, the damaged forest. A would be fouled. Yes. The past participle of the verb befoul. Okay, sure, sure, sure. Yeah, befoul one word. Okay. Yes. Um, ever-changing, change, revol- so is this a riddle? Uh, I don't know. This is time. A part, a, time. This is a continuing part of the poems we've been collecting. Right. Sounds like we're contemplating time, but we'll see. Okay. We'll see. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Give us some time. Yeah, right. That's just what I was thinking. Um, okay. Um, I'm looking. This was once a huge bridge, and this is a major work. Now, Lotro dwarves tend to get carried away when it comes to architecture. I mean, that's known. Yet. Yeah. But, yeah. man, this is huge. Whoa. I'm, I'm, like, stuck now. Yeah. Where am I? What's going on? Oh, rubber banding. Whoa. What's happening? Help. Uh, okay. I don't think you can go there. I can't go up to. Yeah. No, I'm being forced down by the current. Uh, I think, I think, uh, I think the map ends at that point. Oh, man. I wanted to get that's right under it. For, that's a bridge for looking at. Sure. All right. Fine. If this is the closest I can get, then fine. Um,. All right. Notice that four-pointed starburst thing, that diamond shape, is running up and down the blue, the the brown lines in the pillars. Yes. I don't. Hmm. There's a swirly pattern up near the top of the bridge span. Yep, I was looking at that. I think it's the knot work. I think it's the knot work. Oh, the swirl, the box swirly pattern? Yeah, the little box mm-hmm. that has a swirly pattern on it. Mm-hmm. Almost looks like a space from the same. Yes. I think that I think we've seen before. But it's like those sort of starburst panels. It's a different pattern from the starburst panels, but um Wow, I'm literally in the weeds here. Yeah, I'm very in the weeds. All right, let's let's get up there. I just wanted to see the underside if we could, but uh, if we can't, then fine. And so this is part of it that's tumbled down, presumably. Uh, yes, I, I think so. Yes. Oh, I can't climb up. Okay. Another piece of paper. This is a birch bark page. This one might be about Gollum again. Ah. Uh, 
Let's see. In blackest shadow his eyes burn, ravening hungry to return, lurking among ling and shrub, weeping, creeping, old man ub. Old man oh. ub. Old man ub? That's a that's a twist. Yeah, yeah. Old man ub is we we got another old man ub poems before. Okay, we can get up to, yeah, we can get up onto the bridge. That like sticky up bit there is interesting um but i want to get a little closer all right let's let's um let's go There's around like tutor rose here okay yeah so if theoretically if we ride around in the circle here yeah i saw what looked like a kind of snowflake like pattern oh wait emily you found the way to get under oh man Current Must wouldn't have been let on the me. other side where I was getting stuck. Yeah, I was totally stuck. Uh oh, starting to get a little misty. We must be heading up into the mountains again. Mountains again? Uh oh, it's a Bjorning. He's not going to assault us, is he? He doesn't have any. His name is Big Bar. Big bar. Big bar. Oh, he's got a little homestead here. How adorable. Yeah. Old Bear's That's not his name. It was Hogbar. Huh. Big bar. This is Big Hold Bar and this is Hodver's homestead. Okay. Where's oh this is Hodver. He's the one who's mucking. Oh yeah, the right he's the putting straw out for the pigs. Right, the guy with the straw is the one who actually owns the homestead. Yes. Like huh. Okay, so we have the same glass. Notice that we don't have the. Well, we get a little bit of it. The green. We got the pulley. We got the pulley on this little hen coop. Yeah, <laughs> I love the pulley. <laughs> you never know when you're gonna need to hoist. What very heavy bags of chicken feed, maybe? Yeah, uh, I, I guess it's village of the orthopedically minded villagers. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Don't lift with your back. Lift with the pulley. <laughs> the door frame. Mm -hmm. That's weird. That is not like yeah. we've seen in Holtvis or in Blomgard. It looks like it's holding up the gutter, frankly. Kind of does. Like it was uh, an afterthought. Kind of does, and there are those weird rocks, Milthalio or Milthalio. Yes, I think they look like rocks, and there's one on the backside too, embedded in the, in the shingles. They look like slate shingles, perhaps. Um, yeah, you. That was a that was a quick fix on loose shingles. I've seen that on Thatcher, or yeah. not Thatcher. Um, um, I think. I think they were wood, wood tile. Um, Japanese houses will occasionally have rocks on them for some reason or other. I haven't figured. I've never right. asked why. So. Right. It takes a long time to make a new slate shingle, but if a shingle breaks, you can plug it with a large a rock. rock. Or, it, or it's to keep down loose ones, possibly. Right. Perhaps. Perhaps. These guys are big. Big old shingles. Yep. Yep. They are huge. But yeah, this, this seems to be a um this seems to be a distinction there seems to be a, a cultural distinction between this homestead here and 
Holtvis and Blumgard. I mean, it could be idiosyncratic. It's only just the one house, so it might just so be. I the... view it doesn't actually. I don't think it's a rock. I think it's um, mud or or moss. Oh yeah. Yeah, <laughs> there's like little bits sticking out. Right. Maybe right. It's a mud patch. Maybe it's just some greenery that took root. Maybe, maybe, or some, you know, mud again that was put there on purpose to stop a leak. Yeah. Um, if they got if they got clay like we do out here, right. I'd, you could do that. Right, right, exactly. Um, yeah, yeah, okay. Um, yeah, interesting. So I... And this guy, assuming this guy has anything to do with Hodver over there, um, is uh, explicitly a Bjorning, whereas they were not explicitly Bjornings. Uh, obviously connected with them in some way. Um back at Holdvis and at um uh oh, sorry here I am going cross country for no especially particular reason um uh we've seen them at Hol at Holdvis and Bloomgard they they just look a little bit different and here again those watchtowers mm -hmm. oh, okay now this is the village where we were attacked by invisible bears yes. right like it's the moment of truth here. The ghost bear strikes again. Yeah. Okay. All right. So see, she's got no wooden talisman. Um, you know, doesn't have little wooden face, does have tattoos. Look at how different her clothing is too. the skins and furs. Look at her fuzzy no boots. Big thing is no pants. That's it. Yep. Yep. Um, yeah, there's... She is very different from the natives that we saw um, back in... back in Holtvis and in Blomgard. Blomgard. Blomgard, right? Guard of Blooms. No, Did they... Yeah, her name is... Her name is Longhar. Oh, Lomhar, you're quoting her name, right, right, um, and um, they didn't have split rail fences like this either. But a lot of the girls in the guard towers are very rohirrim. Yes, they are. I've fallen from those things often enough to recognize. Right. Oh, yep. Yeah, there we go. We got the tattoo and. The Sheepskin skirt. Yeah, yeah. That kind of scarf with the brooch. I mean, again, everything about that is just, it's very different. Mm -hmm. But well, look at this woman over here, though, with the star. Huh. Yeah. Look at that. Green look look at that. What's she got? Hey, oh, look, she's got the wooden, she got it. She's got the little thing hanging on her belt. Yeah. The little wooden face guy. Yep. Is she from out of town? Uh, I think she's from down the road, judging by the big uh, the circular brooch on her chest. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, I think I think she's from out of town, originally. They also have plaid. They, they also they like the tartan. Yep. 
Yeah, her clothes are different. Notice the fabrics and the ties on her sleeves instead of the skins and furs. Notice the lack of fuzzy, but the longer skirts. All right, the floor-length mm-hmm. skirts. And the presumably non-fuzzy boots peeking out. Uh, I also noticed with the Arning women, um, even those with long hair tend to keep it shorter than most uh, women in the other villages. Right, she's got hers kind of pulled around, so it's hard to see. But um, but it's also shoulder length. It's yeah. not yeah. flowing tresses like this. Yeah. Oh, and I agree, Nancy. Much less skin showing. I mean, it's it. it she this lady looks like a the product of a very different culture than this lady here. No, this lady's going to plow her driveway in shorts. Yeah. Yeah. In flip flops, you know, one of those. Things. Yeah. Yep. But yeah, I see the the hair stops at shoulder length. It's it's definitely a length to you know. To, to be an advantage in a bar fight. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep, the skirts that end at the knee. Yep, and then, let's see, this guy here. All right, he's got the face tattoo, which is suggestive. Hmm. This guy. Thought? He's got leggings and a pattern too. What is he? Is he cross-gaitered? Yeah, he's got, cr- yeah. I think he's he might be cross-gaitered. That's weird. And he's got, like, pantaloons. Mm-hmm. I think, I think this is a hybrid. Might be. How odd. This is someone of multiple lineage. Love the belt, though. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the belt is, like, almost full WWE right there. I mean, it doesn't have, like, the big, you yeah. know, plate and buckle on it, but as far as yeah. with the belt, my goodness. Yeah, that's a nice tunic, too. Studded leather? Tunic? Got studs yeah, all yeah. over the back. Yeah, with a beautiful crisscross pattern on it. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, that guy's kind of different. Pretty well-dressed for the army. More pulleys. Can't be too careful. Okay, well, it's much... this. I'm enjoying my visit to this town much more this time, I have to say. Yeah. Okay. Now... Oh, where have we seen that? We did see that down in the south, didn't we? This sort of star mm-hmm. pattern with the logs above the door? Uh, I'm sure we saw that. The- I might have missed that. Oh, that's the fog rolling on. I thought this was the smokehouse. Right, no? Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's just it's just on the edge of the fog. The watchtowers do kind of look like Rohiric watchtowers, but they're stone. Oh hey, I could milestone here. Maybe we should do that. Yeah, yeah, good idea. I think I'm gonna. I think I'm gonna milestone here. Because something's telling me we're not going to get to a very detailed look at the bridge yet, since we have this whole village to distract us for a minute here. Okay, so we've got ooh, a well to jump down. 
Oh, there's water down there. That's handy. Map can't do it. Yeah. Oh, well. I was willing. You were going to throw yourself in and... Uh, See what happened. Yeah. And be of no Find further nuisance. Glory is not. Okay. Yeah, so just like Hodver down there, um, mm -hmm. that the door lintel, crossed door lintel thing, which is just weird, and the rocks or mud clumps on the roof. Windows are very similar to Holdfist and Blomgard, mm -hmm. though. But yeah, these these houses just don't... You know, remember how the other houses look so much like the Rohiric style? And these just mm -hmm. just don't. They just don't feel like that at all. They're kind of their own thing. Yeah. Is this a smokehouse? This little one? This little round one? Yeah, sure looks like it. Or maybe a silo. Yeah. Okay, the Forge and Relic Master with the yeah, same kind of... scarf on, doesn't she? Yeah, yeah. Same kind of tunic and skirt thing. The nice mm -hmm. wide belt. Wide belts seem to be a thing here among the Bjornings. To display your big circular insignia, which probably mm -hmm. displays where your family is. Mm-hmm. Okay, and we would have to keep going up to get to the bridge, right? Mm-hmm, thanks. Oh, but we have more village. Let's see. Look at this last with the axe. Yeah. And the fur and the tartan. Yeah, it's like everything. And the short wearing, sleeves. Like, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean they tend to build predominantly with stone. We've got, you know, some of these houses which are wood. Mm-hmm. Very few houses and barns that do not have pulley. Yeah. Very concerned and conscientious. Mm -hmm. Oh, wait, we can't get through to the bridge from here? No, we've got to be. Oh, yeah. We're so close. What's up here? Oh, go behind this. Uh, try going behind here, maybe. Do we have to climb up the hill? Where's the rest of the road? Where's the like the remnant of the road? What do we see from up here? Oh, we're not quite in the right place. Yeah. Right, there's the road that leads to the bridge. Yeah, it is. We've got to go down there. We've got to go out of the village, right? We took a right to go up into the village. If we'd gone straight, we would have gotten here. I see, I see. Okay. Okay. All right, well, now we know how to do next time. This is a fun view. Look at this. This is a fun view. Right there's that village with the Arnorian ruins on it. Right, the Numenorian yeah. ruins. Oh, yeah, you can see it pretty well. And then here. down you can pretty much make out the work site. Yep. You got the Misty Mountains over there. And that's all Merkwood on the other side. And that's all Marquette on the other side. You got these hills and then 
Markwood proper starting on the other side. There's you can see the larger trees up on top over there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, cool, cool. Um, nice. Um, yeah, Milthaliel says I'll have to remember this in ten years when I finally make it here. Yeah, I'm not anywhere near here myself, Milthaliel, but. Um, uh, I'm still Wigand is just inside the Black Gate. And he's my Express Root character. Oh, uh, yeah. Grifflet is still in uh, Westfold. So, anyway. Okay. All right. We should end. We might as well end here at the Spectacular View. And we will come back to take in these Dwarvish Ruins next time. And then see what else we need to see. We need to go. We export all the way up to the mountains, so then it's just across the river and north up towards uh, the Carrick. Mm -hmm. Basically. Cool. Alright. Excellent. Well, thanks everybody for joining us. This was a fun uh, field trip and some unexpected things that we discovered. Um, and um, I am... Uh, uh, excited to continue to continue our discussion of the text and to continue our explorations here next week. So I will say good night, everybody. Thanks for joining us.